Who remembers the day you got engaged? Awesome, we got some hands up. Fond smiles. Bit of grins. Did, did things go perfectly right? <laughs> no, never do, do they? You lay out these beautiful plans and everything's going to be exact and then it's not. Monday, November 20, 2000. I took Jen up to this place on the Mornington Peninsula called Arthur's Seat. Beautiful summer's summery afternoon, evening, done the picnic dinner. And then we're just sort of hanging around this place, which was, it's called Matthew Flinders Lookout or something like that. And it's about 8.30 at night. And I'm, I've done the whole picnic thing and I've planned to pop the question that night. What didn't work was the sunset being on time. <clears throat> I'm up on a massive hill. There's a chairlift that goes down that thing, right? So it's tall. Overlooking the ocean, the worst place for a horizon to, for the sun to disappear over. And it's 8.30 and this sunset is nowhere to be found. It's still beaming down. We're still getting burnt off this thing. It's like... And because it's not going perfectly with the plan, I'm starting to get jittery. I'm starting to get strange. And we're standing in this really random spot for no apparent reason. <laughs> and Jen's like, what on earth is a problem? And I'm like, all right, I've got to bite the bullet. And I got down on my knee, popped the question. She said, yes, and here we are, right? Beautiful night, and we're phoning our friends. We're engaged. On Tuesday, the day after, during my work day, I was driving, and I had about 30 minutes in between jobs. And I had that moment where the whole gravity of engagement hit me like a ton of bricks. There's this moment where I, it's almost like you, I, I, if, you had like, if you had done this in three o'clock in the morning when you suddenly remember something, I sat bolt upright. My days of batching was coming to an end. Life was now going to be shared with someone else till death do us part. Suddenly that was a lot to take in and the best way I can describe that experience is that everything just got real. This is happening. Now I've spoken to a number of men since about getting married and just about all of them tell me they experience a similar gamut of emotions. It's almost like we grieve our single life and then <laughs> before getting into the big day. Like me, all these men are going to be fine once they get to the wedding day and beyond. I got there, no jitters for me. Jen was on time. She wasn't even late. There was no looking back for either of us, right? But the journey from betrothal to presentation, which is the time that you and I simply know, know, know as engagement, that can be a pretty full-on time. The ring isn't on the finger yet. But you are still, in a way, treating the situation like it is a done deal. 
Now I'm going to look at that a little bit more in just a moment. But first, I need to have that lingering in the back of our minds as we get into the first half of our passage today. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 11. And we're going to start at verse 1 together today. It's on screen if you haven't got it open yet. See, here we go. Verse 1. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Christ other than the Christ we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support for them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Caia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Keep your thumb in there, we'll come back. The opening part of this passage comes across a lot like the father of a bride in that cultural setting. And with all the anxieties that such a person would be dealing with. As you would imagine for the time, arranged marriage was for the most part the way things were done. The bride would be promised or betrothed to someone by her father sometimes when she was actually quite young. And since this arrangement was legally binding, it was then the dad's anxious job to ensure that her eyes didn't stray towards someone else. He had a really important job to do in this time, in this space between betrothal and presentation on the wedding day. And that was to get the bride to that day in an honourable and undivided state. So when Paul thinks of the church he once pastored, he sees himself in a role similar to that. He is the father of the bride, as it were. The bridal imagery of the church is found throughout the New Testament. We might just close those back doors. Those kids will have fun out there. (laughs) The bride imagery of the church starts with the idea of Jesus in John 14 being one example of that. 
He speaks there of going to his father's house to prepare a place and then coming back for the disciples. And that is classic groom talk. That's actually what a groom would do. Will you marry me? Yep, awesome. I'll come back for you. And he would literally go back and build a room. Make a lodging, set things up. And at some point, whenever that was done, he would come back to sweep her off her feet and have the big festival and, and feast and everything and get on with it. The bridal imagery of the church is one of the reasons we view marriage as highly as we do as believers, or at least we should. Because it is actually one of the ways a Christian demonstrates the kingdom of God. Because the church itself is a betrothed bride. And just as I sat bolt upright with the realisation that I was getting married, and just as other men here and elsewhere have experienced the same thing, I believe Paul is looking for that sort of reaction from the Corinthian church as he writes this. This is not some mushy love story or some comedy playing out. This is a serious call to consider a major paradigm of their faith. An agreement was made the day they came to faith. They were betrothed, engaged. They were purchased with blood. In some cultures you might even think of that as a dowry. And a down payment or a pledge was left. A significant action that an engagement ring in our setting might, engage, might represent. A pledge is left, and that is what the Holy Spirit is described as in this letter by Paul. The day they came to Jesus and declared him to be their one and only Lord, forsaking all other deities, refusing to pay homage to the emperor, and going all in by believing in the deity, death, and resurrection of Christ. That was the day their engagement just got real. They now had responsibilities to live in keeping with the position of being a betrothed person and a people. And Paul is feeling duty-bound here to get them faithfully to that wedding day. But Paul is worried at this point. I love the imagery he uses here for a minute. Just as Eve was seduced by the, the serpent, right, okay, here's, here's how it sort of works. One, he describes them as new creations in Christ earlier. And now he declares that the new creation is in a vulnerable state. He's poetically using the names from the first creation to account that, uh, illustrate that. It's also interesting to note that the first bride was deceived by a direct but subtle assault of the enemy, the serpent. And it's no accident Paul uses that because there is a subtle deception emerging in Corinth at this time, looking to steal the people away. We've been seeing unravelling of this or a, a, an unfolding of what this idea has been looking like throughout the first, this letter different snippets, different statements being made that indicate to us what exactly is being dealt with, even though we're still trying to piece it all together. 
But now we're getting a little bit more details. Apparently, a different Christ is being preached. Apparently, a different spirit accompanies this message. Now I've heard churches talk about we have different spirits to them. No, we all have the Holy Spirit. This is something different. Perhaps it's a works-based gospel with elements of the law thrown in, a Jesus-plus type of gospel. We see indications that it could be part of that. Perhaps it's a Corinthian-friendly version of the gospel. Seeker-sensitive on steroids. One that is more suitable for refined ears. One that is more palatable to Corinthian ears and senses. Perhaps it's one that turns a blind eye to immoral and idolatrous behaviour. We definitely see indication of that. Perhaps it downplays suffering and taking up one's cross. Perhaps it downplays the work of the cross or downgrades the person of Jesus. Whatever it is, it may well fit the bill of a conversation I had with one of our church members just this week. You know how you can listen to something and it just it sounds okay, it sounds on point? But then it's not. I know I've heard a lot of that in my time. It almost certainly teaches a way that presents Paul's leadership and gospel in a bad light. It certainly disparages Paul's refusal to accept their financial input and it makes him out to be a bad person because of it. Paul didn't accept a dime from the Corinthian church for his ministry because that was fraught with danger. The money would get in the way of the message. It would get weird between them. Paul would not take that risk and he's made that position quite clear elsewhere. But the false guys are making this claim against Paul. Why? Because they want to have the opposite outcome. They want their pockets lined by exploiting the church. Whatever it is that's being preached here, Paul is making a really the strongest possible call about these guys. You couldn't say anything worse about these people if you tried. They claim to follow Jesus. They claim to have the Holy Spirit. They are making the claim that they are one of them and authorised to be teachers of the church. But it is all a show, a masquerade. Paul is saying these people in your midst that have come from nowhere, claiming apostolic authority, contradicting everything you've ever received and heard, these people that for some reason, for unknown reason, you have been drawn into and you're receiving their stuff and considering it superior to what you've already received, these people that have come into your midst and doing this are nothing more than masked play actors. Under the surface, their influence is not Jesus, but in fact, Satan. Nobody knows the masquerade game better than him. So he's telling the Corinthians to consider the source. It is possible that in a church setting, demonic-influenced preachers can still have a platform. Scary. Let's let all that hang for a moment. Let's go on to verse 16. 
I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools, since you were so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you, or exploits you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. How are you getting the idea that he's in danger? I have laboured and toiled and have gone often without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. I've seen movies in my time, seen a lot of movies. Sometimes there's been these ones where you encounter a really condescending character in it. And you know they're being condescending, they're being really sarcastic and they're, uh, you know, they've got this superiority complex going on and they'll say something along the lines of this. Let me explain this in terms even you can understand. Who's heard that phrase spoken? I've actually had my bosses tell me that at one point. But uh, it's, it's, it's out there. Let me explain this in terms even you can understand. It's a condescending statement. A little bit sarcastic, a bit snarky. It's actually a little bit of the tone that Paul's using here. In terms that Corinth seems to be understanding right now. And those terms are being boastful and being prideful and being self-elevating. That's what they're understanding. That's what they're gravitating to. One of the ways of perhaps looking at false teachers is to consider how boastful they are. Boastfulness is a really weird thing. It's a language all of its own. And it's unappealing after a while to the people around them people who are being hearing this boastfulness somehow strangely draws people in because boastful people exude charisma 
They can reel people in with the colourful stories they tell. They can throw the humour into it. They can throw the, the rhetoric in it. They can throw the style into it. They can throw the, 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 the pictures into it. They can draw people right in. And they can embellish because they've done that. But after you've been reeled in by the charisma and after you've realised the character of the storyteller is not equal to the boast and you've worked through the hyperbolic nature of the thing, you sometimes come out of those conversations and interactions feeling like you need a shower. Particularly in a church setting. There's something really off when Christians get together and participate in boastful conversation. One-upmanship. Now, I get it. We all want to be liked. We want to tell stories that make other people think that we've got experiences to share. But it's a whole other plane to take that to a point where it's simply not true, where it pulls down others to make yourself look good, where it highlights everything you did and and nothing the Lord did. When it relies on your charisma and people don't look deeper under the surface. There is a boastfulness going on in Corinth right now amongst so-called apostolic leaders. And Paul feels repulsed by it all. He's already quoted Jeremiah 9 a number of times, summing it up by saying, if anyone's going to boast, do it in the Lord. In that anything the Lord does is boastworthy, but what man does, not so much. And yet he has been called into question by boastful people. His character is ironically being questioned. Why? Because he is not boasting about his achievements. Because he hasn't been as equally boastful as these other guys, because he came in with humility, because he came in with gentleness, because he came in not wanting to be elevated but except to exalt Jesus, his character is now being questioned by these other people. And the Corinthian church is being reeled in. They haven't yet got to the point where they need that shower yet. They haven't properly filtered what they're hearing. They have no discernment. They're drawn in by charisma but not weighing up the character of the people that are speaking. And this is what is opening them up to satanic lies. So in terms even the Corinthians will understand, Paul lays down a challenge. All right, if I have to stoop to the level of boast... If I have to come down to that level, try this one for size. Here's my apostolic boast. Here are my accolades and my credentials. Prison, a lot. Hard work, loads of it. Floggings, at last count, there's 195 marks and scars on my back. Beatings, yep, three pretty big ones with weapons. Death, faced it often. In fact... One group thought they'd done the job, walked away, left me for dead. Shipwrecked a few times. Acts only tells us of one, and that hasn't happened yet. 
He hasn't gone down to that jail part yet. He hasn't gone out of Jerusalem, hasn't headed towards Rome yet. None of that's taken place. Already shipwrecked three times. He's only halfway through his apostolic ministry here. He's, not even, he's been 14 years in faith. He's still got another 10 years of life at this point. No prison epistles being written yet. Persecuted loads looking over his shoulder a lot. No fixed address for quite some time. Sleepless nights, empty belly, exposed to the elements. Definitely not making any money from this. And on top of that, he says, loads of people want a piece of me because I'm their pastor. I've got a concern for all the churches. And then he goes, and then on top of that, that's all the externals. I've got my own problems. I've got my own weaknesses. I've got my own burdens. I've got my own sins. I've got my own character to work on at the same time. So he says, Corinthians, now that I've lowered myself to the point of boasting, compare it with what you're hearing from those other guys. And consider the gospel you want to follow as a result. I boast of weakness and they boast of personal accolades. I boast of a life dead to myself and alive to the gospel. They boast a life of getting all they want out of you. I boast of suffering and identifying in every way with the cross of Christ. They boast of comfort as a way of gauging spirituality. I boast of being free in Christ. They boast of how they can hold you captive to their satanic agendas. So compare the boasts. Make a call about the faith and the gospel it is that you follow. I'm going to leave it there now. I'm going to come to an end. I'm going to wrap this up for just one brief moment here. And take a moment to consider where we might be at with all this. This is a really full-on thing to take in. And I'm like reading this at the start of the week going, my goodness, after all the ground we've covered so far, what does the Lord want to say? And I think it gets down to two questions. Now, I've been here two years now. Today is pretty much the second anniversary of my first sermon to you. Well, we'll be on Tuesday. My induction was two years ago last Tuesday. And I've said this a number of times over our two years together, starting with Acts to now. That if any ancient biblical congregation parallels the modern Western church, the way I see it, it has to be the congregation that gathers in Corinth. The Western church, sorry, Corinth is being seduced by preachers and teachers with charisma but no character. It is opening its doors and their hearts to alternative gospels and the spirit that accompanies them. It is doctrinally thin. It favours convenience and consumerism and sees Christian suffering as simply not being spiritual enough. It hasn't made a clean break from the world and the idols and the morals of the Corinthian church and not examined closely enough. The church in Corinth is a betrothed bride in danger of bringing shame upon itself by having eyes for another Christ and another gospel. 
and it is giving in to the seduction of heresy and making their gospel subject to pagan culture when it should be the other way around. And the modern West is in the same danger if it hasn't succumbed already. So when we read this passage and we look in the mirror, there is two questions to be asking here. There could be, we could do a whole lot more, but these are the two I feel from the Lord today. One, what does living betrothed look like for me right now? What does living betrothed look like for me right now? If I am in the place between betrothal and presentation to the groom, then what conduct, what character is expected of me? What preparation should I be making? What plans should, it should be influenced by that? What attitude should I be having in all this? What adjustments should I be making if something is not where it should be right now? What does living betrothed look like for me right now? And even as a pastor, I feel the challenge of that. Do I have to live up to Paul's father of the bride analogy? House church leaders, do you play a role in that? Ministers together, those who are looking out for the, the welfare or the spiritual direction of another. Is that a role you might have to take on? How do we speak into that? How do ministers speak in to the bride in that light? And the other question is this, what gospel am I hearing and holding to right now? Just one of these things that was put on Facebook this week compares the pair. The biblical Jesus and the modern one. The biblical Jesus is born as almighty God in the flesh. Loves us enough to speak the truth, points us towards eternal treasure, warns of sin, judgment of hell, commands repentance, gives you salvation, hope, peace and joy, is hated and despised by the world. Exposes the truth about sin, commands with divine authority, says to expect persecution in his name, brings division when necessary, exalts God the Father's will. Warns of false signs and wonders, magnifies God's word and demands that emotion, experience and opinion conform to sound teaching. And commands that you deny yourself and be willing to lay your life down for God. That's a biblical Jesus. I see verses all over the place that back that up. And the modern Jesus, is, by comparison, is said to be this way. Jesus was a good teacher and a man. He waters down words to avoid offence. He promises us earthly treasure, sends everybody to heaven and dismisses hell, minimizes the need for repentance and sin, gives you health, wealth and happiness, promises our best life now, overlooks sin, never corrects us, gives suggestions, not commandments, allows us to serve our will above God's will and exalts signs, wonders and mysticism above God's word. And exalts emotion, experience, opinion above sound teaching and encourages you to love yourself first and gratify your fleshy desires. 
what gospel, what preachers, what influences are we receiving? And how do they feed our faith? What are they speaking into that? Does it tell me I'm unspiritual if I suffer? Does it play down the holiness of God? Does it remove Christ from the centre and place a man in its place? Am I more familiar with the words of a preacher than the words of Christ? Am I getting caught up in a preacher's cult of personality? What gospel are you hearing? What gospel do you hold to and how does it stack up biblically? Not just the opinion of men, myself included. Ultimately, you are responsible for the gospel you follow. Your discernment matters. Your being led by the Holy Spirit, not another spirit, matters. Your interaction with God's word matters. Your time in your prayer closet so you get to know and discern the word of God, the, hear, the, 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 the voice of God in your spirit, the interaction with the Lord that we can still have today. That's your responsibility. And in that you will, hear, you will have the ear to hear the right gospel. And correct guys like me if the gospel is getting off track. And hold guys like me to account if we need be. Let's have the band up. If you get nothing out of today, remember this. You are betrothed. Live that way faithfully. And you are saved by one gospel. You have received one spirit. Don't be lured into anything less. Let's pray.